big sky, big potential. This is Eastern Promise. Local government is the most vital cog in the democratic machinery. And if you think that statement is a bit over the top, ask yourself this. Without your local council, who'd empty your bins? Deal with planning applications, housing and education. Who would ensure that environmental and public health were kept high on the agenda? That sounds like a huge challenge. And in a region as large as ours, with huge differences in and between council areas, uh, the South Cambridge District Council doesn't share many of the same challenges with the Unitary Authority in Southend-on-Sea, for instance. It's even more impressive that a body like the East of England Local Government Association exists, and not only that, is driving forward its unique convening role. I sat down on a bright but breezy afternoon with the Managing Director of the East of England LGA, Professor Cheryl Davenport, to find out more. Professor Cheryl Davenport, the Managing Director of the East of England Local Government Association, welcome to Eastern Promise. What a, a pleasure it is to have you on, on the programme here on a very sunny but windy day at County Hall in Norwich. Could you give us, please, a potted history of Cheryl Davenport? I can, I can. Interestingly enough, I might go back to uh, the late 80s when I actually was living in Norwich. Hey. Uh, I was a student at the UEA um, and I worked at Gerald's. As a part-time job. Uh, so, yes, my links with Norwich go back a fair way. Um, so, yes, I studied at the UEA. I then uh, was a trainee in the NHS, a general management trainee at the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital um, for two years and then went on to have a career in the NHS in the UK. Wow. I then moved abroad um, and worked in America for a period of time and came back to the UK in 2005, back to the NHS again in, in director roles in um, PCTs, they were at the time. Yes, I remember PCTs, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, and uh, working in Leicestershire. And uh, from there, I then transitioned into a joint role between local government and the NHS in 2014. And that's when I got to find out all about what really happens in local government. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a brilliant job. I was there for six years and um, I was a joint appointment between uh, the two CCGs in Leicestershire and the County Council and I was uh, hosted at the County Council and I was able to um, find out a lot more about all the different facets of work of, of councils. Being a health and care person for the majority of my career I could then find out all sorts of things about, you know, highways, transport, housing, <laughs> uh, many other things, and worked with a lot of the district councils as part of that role. We did a big project on housing and health. Um, and then very gradually, cool, yeah. yeah, very important, gradually um, decided I would challenge myself to move on in, in my career in local government after, you know, 20 plus years in the, in the NHS. And so I find myself January 2020 applying for a job as the East of England LGA's managing director and started in, in post in the in the May of twenty twenty, so right in the in the teeth of, of the pandemic. Mm. Clearly at the time I I did the interview, we didn't know what was before us, but um yeah, so for the first year pretty much Gosh. of this role we were 
we were thrown into into dealing with the pandemic response. So that was a a very challenging year for the whole organisation and for the whole country. Um, I mean, uh, there was something I was going to come on to, but let's let's pivot to that uh, quick, quickly now. What, what does that look? What did that look like for you as an organisation? I mean, obviously the, the local um, authorities had their role. And I remember a very nice lady from Breckland showing up at the door um, and asking if we were all okay. And that was that was really that was really heartwarming. That was really welcome. But what was what was Ilga's role as that kind of was it like a support supporting the, the authorities? Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, but very much so. So, I mean, clearly there were there were days and hours where new information was 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 landing on on the public sector. You know, at a rate of knots. Part of our role was to help councils digest that information quickly, work with partners in the region to respond to it, and in some cases help shape what that response would look like. Um, I think at the very beginning of my tenure in role, we were meeting probably as, as a group of chief execs virtually across the region up to three times a week mm. because things were moving so, so quickly. So obviously there was the responding and supporting vulnerable people, getting information and supplies out to people. And then as time moved on, working with the NHS to coordinate the vaccination response, um, you know, lots of uh, council facilities and staff were involved in, in, in that response as well. Really, it was, it was a very fast-moving uh, mm. year. But by the time I think we got sort of towards the autumn of that year, we were also very concerned at ILGA about helping councils plan for the recovery period from COVID. Yes. And we, we held some round tables, virtual round tables at that time, to think about what people would most need next, because part of the role of our organisation is to be, you know, one step ahead, anticipating what councils will need, um, policy and, and practical terms and putting in place the, the network's advice, guidance and support that helps them to, to, to deliver their roles. So, yes, we were very much in operational response mode, but we also had that one eye on, actually, who's thinking about the next 12 months and what that will look like for councils as they come through this, yeah. this challenge. You're talking about anticipating need. Uh, so how do you do that? What's the process involved in that? Because that sounds like a really, really tough, t tough gig because you've not only got the movement of, of, I mean, here we've got a two tier system, but there are plenty of other places. You've got combined authority in Cambridge. You've got uh, unitaries on the London fringe. How do you go about doing that? Because that sounds like a tremendous job. It is. It is. Um, I mean, the, the region is really complex and diverse. And, you know, along with the things that you've already mentioned, we've got things like you know innovation and tech corridors uh, an oxcam arc organization we've got we've got a whole range of, of entities and it is such a jigsaw and when i first arrived in post as uh, new to the region in terms of um, this part of my professional life i was trying to put that whole jigsaw mm. together and and understand it the way we do that at ilga is we are working side by side with central government we are working side by side with the national LGA and with all of our 50 councils in the region. And it's our job to really influence policy as much as possible. So be involved in that national and regional conversation, but also then be involved in understanding how that would best be implement, implemented in our particular region, because it's not one size fits all, you know, each region. And it's certainly not one size fits all inside a region like ours. Um, and we're across political party organisations. So 
our role is very much to to look at things in that in that way to hopefully bring people to consensus wherever possible about how things could or should be done to share good practice and learning to help people accelerate that and in particular you know given all the constraints on resources of of the public sector if it's something that can be done once and shared um, you know across all councils or a group of councils then actually we're a, we're a conduit for that um, and that's efficient uh, and, and really helps councils get ahead of the game. Yeah. Some sort of small experience of this um, working for an MP, you, you kind of, is it, you kind of get to see sort of how the, the, the national civil servants work in, in, in Whitehall and how that kind of feeds down and down and down. When sort of central government, um, particularly I would think that it's part for levelling up or whatever it's called this month, uh, comes out with with what it comes out with. Uh, is, is, is your role, is your role as Ilga kind of to, to to translate that for your various members and say, well, f- for the unitaries it means this, for the two t- double tiers, upper tiers, lower tiers, it means this, and for the combined authorities it'll mean that. So is that is that what you you kind of find yourself doing? In part, in part, but you know each each council as well has its own capacity and resources to be able to to, to do that level of interpretation to a greater or lesser extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose our role is to help um, signpost to the, the the kind of thorny areas of that. We wouldn't want to duplicate. We wouldn't want to just you know provide a summary of the latest white paper that you know forty nine other organisations might do the same thing. Um, what we would want to do is say, here's our summary of the levelling up white paper, but this is what we feel it means for our region, and these are particular issues that we yeah. feel will affect our region out of that. Um, because we have a national LGA who um, absolutely would do the, here's the digest for the whole of local government in the country. So, you know, our role is to put the east of England slant on that and make sure that yeah. we are advocating for that. Fantastic. Um, so, ILGA is a, a what's called a politically led organisation. Can you tell us about what that means in practice? Yes, of course. So ILGA um, is a membership organisation that it comprises the 50 councils in the east of England. We've got all the councils in membership. And I mentioned that we're a cross-party organisation. So um, each of the um, four main uh, political groups in our region have a representative, uh, a, a, a chair of that political party in the region who then is on our management committee of ILGA. And on that on that committee, um, you've therefore got uh, Labour, Lib Dems, Conservatives and the Independent Group represented. Uh, you also have the lead chief executive for the region, so someone who is nominated by their peers to take that role and represent all chief execs in the region. Um, and along with, um, for us, we have three political panels, committees, if you like, of ILGA that look at particular aspects of our work. So the management committee is the governing group, if you like, and then underneath that we've got three panels that focus on particular issues. So we've got one on infrastructure and growth, one on uh, people and communities, and then we've got one which focuses on our role as a local government employers association. Um, and that's, that's you know, perhaps not, 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 not well known outside of local government circles, but in terms of our status as an organisation, we're a local government body and we represent the uh, pay, terms and conditions and HR practice of councils. And we have a particular role in that regard with other regional LGAs and the national LGA. And, and we have a relationship with the trade unions through that role. 
So um, those three panels, local government employers, infrastructure and growth, people and communities, are, are the primary policy uh, groups that are operating within ILGA. And each of those is, is led by, by a politician. The ILGA Talent Bank. Can you tell me about the I Talent can. Bank? What is it? Yes. What does it do? So um, to, to put this in context, I've just described the four parts of ILGA and the Talent Bank is one of them. So... We have a, that policy and advocacy role, which is the subscription part of our organisation, so paid for by members by subscription. And that's broadly in two teams, a general policy team and the local government, government employers team that I mentioned. There are two further uh, parts of ILGA that aren't funded by subscription. So the first one is our strategic migration partnership, which we'll perhaps come back to and, and mm-hmm. talk about a bit more. Um, this and that's funded by specific government grants for particular purposes. And then the Talent Bank is a commercial part of our organisation. So going back to 2013, uh, roughly around that time, there were a number of um, independent uh, consultants or associates who specialised in local government in our region, who very often councils would be looking to call upon to help with additional pieces of work. And ILGA at that time took the decision to create a a small talent bank of those people Mm -hmm. that could be um, drawn down and accessed by our councils through ILGA, uh, a trusted source of of those people. Um, Over the course of time, that talent bank has evolved. So it started off pretty much around areas like um, HR because of our role as a local government employers association. We have great skills in that area. Quite often councils need help with external advice on HR for all sorts of reasons. And so that, that's how that began. But over the period of time, um, we've actually added in consultants and associates on all the kinds of topics that, that, that are challenges really to, to councils. So asset management, uh, transformation of services, um, health and care, um, you know, a whole range of things, climate change. Uh, obviously, yeah, uh, in the last obviously, yeah. few years, become increasingly difficult for you know to get specialists that actually councils need to draw on, and because our councils vary in size, as you mentioned, you know from smaller district councils to larger county councils, often district councils um, need to bring in a specialist from time to time because they don't have that that in their organisation all, yeah. all year round. Um, so district councils are high users of our of our talent bank. It's been a great success for ILGA and it provides a, a bit of a commercial income that gets ploughed back into what we generally do, yeah. um, which means that we can do a lot more than we could if we didn't have the talent bank. Mm-hmm. We've now got um, over 80 associates in the talent bank and it's a really well-used service. I mean, talking of um, sort of a, a bank of talent, you've got your chief executives group as well, which, um, which has you've got a lead uh, chief executive, as we know. And it just interested me that you've got this kind of mix of district chief executives for district councils. You've got chief executives of more than one district council, uh, thinking of Trevor Holden at South Norfolk uh, being one example, and Broadland. Um, you've got uh, Norfolk County Council and upper tier authority, combined authorities, unitaries. How is that? I, I mean, is it, is it a case that they've always got something to share? And how does that, how does that sort of dynamic work? It's a really good group, actually. And interestingly, from the pandemic has come, you know, the the virtual meeting of chief execs became the norm. 
Uh, and before uh, the pandemic, I think they were meeting less often, but in person. Mm -hmm. We're now in a situation where that chief execs group is a, is a really um, well-functioning group of people who meet once a month virtually um, and also in person occasionally during the year. And what we've, what we've done there, certainly since I've arrived, is try to create an agenda for that group once a month. It's just an hour. You know, chief execs are, you know, hugely busy people with lots of things to juggle. But to make that a, a really meaningful hour for them where they can come together with their colleagues, seek support, um, share um, learning. We have um, obviously speakers coming in on particular topics um, that are kind of hot topics of the day, but also, you know, discuss sort of tactical responses to things that are difficult, you know, where we might be being asked to coordinate a response across the whole of the region back into central government. Yeah. Um, and our lead chief exec takes a particular role in that regard too. But what we've also done is, um, if you think about the chief execs as a group, um, they'll have come up, most of them come up sort of through uh, local government, in particular director roles or portfolio roles, and they bring particular um, skill sets. So one of the things that we've done is, uh, aside from just having our lead chief exec, we've got chief execs who take a particular topic role on behalf of their peers in the region. Right, I see, yeah. So, you know, if we were, I don't know, um, asked to respond on a particular, say, children's services matter, we've got a lead chief exec who takes a particular interest in yeah. that area who who we can then engage with right. so it's it's a it's a good it's a good sounding board and it has a collegiate feel Absolutely. you know if you can imagine there are there are days in local government <laughs> that are really is. really challenging yes. chief execs and mm. they're able to talk to each other in that group in a chatham house yes, kind of very way yeah. um and and just you know share what what is on their minds uh, can I come on now to the sustainable growth prospectus, which is a great piece of work. And I really, uh, you know, the, the highlighting of the huge opportunity and potential of the region is, is where, you know, where Eastern Promise comes from. And can I just ask what the impetus behind that was and what, what, what drove that forward? Because as I say, it is, it is a really good, really encouraging piece of work. Thank you for that. Um, I mentioned that period where we were coming out of COVID and looking at the recovery needs of the region. And also my, at the time, it had been very difficult for me to go out and meet people face to face. So I had to build the entire network um, remotely. Mm. So I met all the chief execs and leaders on, on Teams calls, all the strategic partners in the region in the same way. And I started to put that jigsaw together for myself about how, how, how do we describe this region? What, what are we saying? And I kept asking people, where's the document that tells me, you know, what the east of England is and how it's constituted? And where do yeah. I find that all in one place? Well, it didn't seem to exist uh, at the time in that way and, and, and clearly post-pandemic. So um, one of the things that I it, it was a bit of a personal challenge I set myself um, in a way, to say, could I convene a number of partners from across the region, some of whom I'd only met briefly at this stage and, yeah. and on teams, to say, if we offered to produce a, a prospectus for the region, would you, would you help us with the content? So Absolutely, yeah. I had uh, a couple of teams calls. I remember this so vividly. I had a couple of teams calls where I had all these people on the call and we were trying to gauge interest and the ability, if, if you like, to kind of condense all of this massive information 
into a into a sustainable growth brochure for the region and get it designed you know have an actual map that showed where all the assets of the region were um and I must admit at the beginning I thought this isn't you know this isn't going to happen this is this is going to be too difficult but over the course of about five months um we were able to gather the information in have a kind of core of people to help edit that with us and then publish it in it was July 2021 I think mm -hmm. when we published the document and I am really proud of it, not not just because of the fact that it obviously does contain that information that we all needed to have, but that ILGA was able to lead that and convene that. And also for me personally, being relatively new to this type of work in local government, um, that, that I was able to facilitate some of those early meetings to try and bring people along with me when you know i was new to them and yeah absolutely um, it was a it was a tough time to be doing something yeah. like that so yeah very proud of that document and that then led on to a, a a second document which which was october 2021 uh where we we, we looked at that um prospectus and said right what's our offer to government as a yes, result that of was this? Done, yeah yeah um so it was a, a almost like a two-part a two-part document and i think that that really kind of put Ilga on the map in terms of those relationships in the region. They had always been there, but this was a new era, you know, where we mm -hmm. really need to consolidate that message yeah. and start to work with the transport bodies really, really closely. People like Cambridge Ahead, um, you know, make sure we've got kind of one voice going into government as much as possible. That is so important, yeah. Yeah. And, and you have a very powerful convening role to play. And I just... Regular listeners will know this is a tiny bit of a hobby horse of mine. But you, you picked the absolute right word in offer. Um, the so quite often, I, I back in the day and, and, and more recently, when I've done some work as a cons consultancy, there's always the talk about the ask. And yes, there, there are always going to be asks, but it's how you couch it. And I think from that document, from what I read, you had that absolutely on the nose. You set out such a rich offer. Um, uh, and the map is incredible. You look at the map and you just see all these, you know, uh, it's like a, a million uh, spots of light um, almost. Oh, God, that's hyperbolic, but I'll, I'll plow on. Um, might cut that. Uh, anyway, um, and what were the bright spots that you, you found? Were there, was there anything particular that stood out to you? Because I'm constantly getting surprised doing this about what you find and what you come across. But how about, how about yourself? I think... To be to be honest, it was the the level of ambition overall that really stood out for me. That um, I wouldn't say that the region was kind of hiding its light under a bushel, but it was almost like that. That um, there were pockets of really great innovation and opportunity, and some of those are really well known, like the life sciences, you know, in in, in Cambridge or in and around Cambridge. But when we look at the the ambition that's going on in other parts of the region that wasn't getting that that level of, of kind of visibility nationally and globally, it just seemed to me that there was an opportunity to present that and say, yes, you know, we're a we're a global gateway with our ports. Um, you know, we we've got these sectors like the creative sector in in, in Hertfordshire. We've got the life sciences. We've got, you know, um, university, incredibly, you know, excellent universities, not just in Cambridge, in, in this region. 
and we we need to start you know maximizing accelerating that that growth that that really will come if we can align all of the pieces together and by that I don't mean the geography because it's distinct and different and has different needs but things like the transport infrastructure and the digital infrastructure which you know has been a patchwork and, and, and not connected and not providing businesses and and councils with the full you know massive opportunity that that we would have if everybody mm. did have access yes. to mobile coverage and and broadband coverage um if everybody did have actually a, a public transport system that allowed them to be um, traveling easily to work um, across our region, not just between, you know, big conurbations. So there's so much to do there. So, yeah, it was about trying to um, bring all of that together and say to government, look, you know, there's good return on investment here for the Treasury. We've yes. proved that over time, you know, spending here generates a lot more for mm. UK PLC Yes. Um, and that that was the message that we really wanted to get across. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm a, a firm believer and Easter Promise will always be standing for uh, the seeking out of opportunities in something like the Oxcam Arc, which you mentioned earlier. Now, if you're here in Norwich or Ipswich and, and Suffolk, you may think, well, what's in there for us? But. I mean, I'm sort of often like you sort of basically saying sunshine's lovely, isn't it? And inviting someone to agree with you. But it's it's do do you agree that, you know, is is, is it a role Ilga can have in sort of highlighting? Actually, these are the opportunities and you've got to be in it to win it. I do think it's a role for us. Um, Councils are the placemakers. They are the conveners of partners at place. We do that on a regional basis, but each individual council is doing that in its own in its own place. Mm-hmm. So the more that we have a coherent narrative about our places, the more everybody benefits, you know, individuals and families in, in communities, councils as conveners, their partners. Um, you know, it's, it's about pulling that together because ultimately it's about what makes a great outcome and what makes a great place for people to, to live, work, play bring up their families, etc. So actually, this is a, it has to, has to have that coherence to it. But it's not Elga's role to advise a council how it should design its own place. It's, no, it's, no. It's, it's about looking at the region as a whole and making sure that when opportunities are coming into the UK, maybe inward investment opportunities, that our region is ready and has an offer ready for Yes, that. exactly. I mean, uh, I talked to the chair of Cambridge Ahead, uh, Harriet Fear, who was we were talking about foreign direct investment, and that the feedback that they she'd got was, uh, and, and and part of the reason she's doing what she's doing with Cambridge and is that there needs to be a shop window, there needs to be that that uh, that signposting, and that that is that is that is really important. Um, was ne- wasn't quite sure how to phrase this question, but obviously, the levelling at white paper has kind of rung changes for particularly Norfolk and Suffolk in local government. And we're sort of seeing um, the beginning of changes of roles of various parts of the machinery, like uh, local enterprise partnerships. Um, Has uh, ILGA got a role in sort of helping, and I'm assuming you do, helping local authorities find out where that lands? And are we going to see more bodies like Transport East and uh, England's Economic Heartland be formed sort of between councils to sort of take that that forward, do you think? 
I think local government's got a, a really strong history of collaboration, actually, and peer support. So I think, I think yes, in short, I think we are going to see more of that. You might say part of this is out of economic necessity, but I actually think it's more than that. Mm. Um, I think it's in the DNA of local government to work collaboratively as peers. Yes which isn't always the case you know uh, across other the parts of the public sector is not it's not quite that that way so i think we will see more of that um clearly there's a there's a there's a political aspect to that i'm in a politically restricted post so i yes i'm not i'm, I'm, I'm not going I'm to uh, go down that, go down that road but in terms of making sure that councils can get the best opportunities from funding that's available from government whether that be competitive bids or devolution you know the the job of ILGA is to make sure that people have the information and the tools and the collaborative opportunities to do that um, so you know we we would help facilitate that if if people wanted us to um, but more than that, we would we would really make sure that um, everybody is participating fully in in the funding opportunities that are there. And let's face it, some of those have been quite frustrating lately um, mm -hmm. in terms of the levelling up funding that's been um, allocated by government. Councils have had to bid in for that, and and that that creates an element of competition, not not collaboration. Yeah. So, you know, there are some there are some levers in there and some issues that all need to get kind of ironed out I think but at, at, at the bottom of this is I think getting the best bang for the buck taxpayer wise and ensuring that the the strong foundation of local government collaboration can withstand some of the mm. churn that you know is going to happen as we go through these devolution type discussions yeah absolutely I mean I recall um, the end of uh, EDA and the RDAs and the Government Office for the East, yeah. having met um, Barbara Follett when she was in post. And I know that Daniel Zeichner, who is co-chair of the APPG, is, is very much hoping that he will, he will once, you know, one day, who knows what's going to happen, that's up to the electorate, but to take on that role, maybe. Um, but you mentioned levelling up, and you've... Eagle have put out this, in, in concert with the APPG for the East of England, uh, an incredibly, incredibly detailed, but... At the, by the same token, uh, very. I'm, I'm leaping through it now, dear listener. Um, very well written, very straightforward, um, and it goes into incredible level of granularity um, about what's happening and what the barriers to change are in various places. I suppose I should start by asking, what does levelling up look like to Ilga, or is it? basically a basket of pictures depending on which part of the region you're you're talking to i think leveling up for for us is actually making sure that every community in the east of england benefits you know when you look at this report you can see some of the data for our region is really quite stark and quite concerning mm. and not all of this is in the gift of local government to solve but uh much of it is with the right tools and funding um, and the collaborative partnerships, including with not just within local government. So our, I suppose our view would be the reason that we wanted to do this report was we felt that levelling up was a was a was a white paper. It was a it was a phrase. It was a what does it really mean? I think everybody was grappling with that at the beginning. 
And so because, as I said earlier, our, our approach to all of this is to say, what does it mean for the East of England? We looked at the, the 12 missions and said, you know, well, where are we in the East against these missions? What's, what's the benchmark? What does good mm. look like? You know, there's targets in here for 2030, et cetera, um, that government have set. But, but, but how are we actually going to know that we're making progress towards those? And do we start from a very poor baseline or a good baseline in relation to all of these? So we, we thought it would be helpful to give that analysis to help our councils and their partners think about, well, if I am going to leverage more opportunity out of levelling up, where should I be focusing my attention um, and my priorities? And how will I know if I'm making progress? And my final point on this, I suppose, is that the 12 missions really have to be taken together because... Right. um, it's actually the whole the whole jigsaw that we need. So, you know, the health and care outcomes, the educational outcomes, the transport, the digital, all of it um, needs to work together. And yeah. so looking at each mission individually is actually not helpful. And what, what you will see through this report is that we make the links between the missions. Yeah. I mean, it's first of all, it's very it's commendable, I think, that. You just said, well, we have no way of judging this, so let's find a way of judging this and find a way of judging them against the priorities of the East of England. And also, um, what I want sort of reflecting on what you've just said is there is a school of thought that suggests that greater improvements come by focusing on strength, improve, you know, improving your strengths, bolstering strengths, and which generate better returns than focusing on the weak spots. Um, are we now approaching a point in the east of England where our ability to do the former, to bolster those strengths, is being undermined by the fact that the weak spots are uh, are still weak. This is a really good point. So if you look at things like the number of graduates who don't stay in the region, educational attainment levels for our schools, our transport infrastructure, which has got major gaps... Um, you know, these are things that, and this is a medium-term endeavour, you know, whether mm. there's a levelling up uh, white paper or indeed a, a, a levelling up mission or 12 missions going forward, these, this is the stuff of inequality, um, all of it. Yeah. Um, so if you're not tackling these issues on a, in, on a medium to long-term basis, then you are going to be holding back mm. um, opportunity um, for people, families yeah. and the region as a whole. So, yeah, we've got some key stumbling blocks in here, actually, and that's what the report has uncovered. We don't know how the government is going to yet measure these missions. Yeah. We don't know whether there's going to be a, a league table, of a set of data. <laughs> oh, God, I hope not. And we had <laughs> oh, some really interesting discussions about, well, how, you know, we haven't scientifically assessed each of these missions, you know, with like a number of percentage points. We've done a, a sort of confidence factor. Um, and we felt that that was a good start to say we feel, you know, more confident about this being achieved, we yeah, feel less yeah. confident about this being achieved because we haven't got um, a baseline framework no. for that yet. It's a great turn of phrase and it's a really, it really, you're right, it doesn't, it doesn't say, well, we are like, we think this is, this is the score because you've kind of almost insulated yourself against, well, where did you get that from then? It's like, well, this is our confidence and you can't take our level of confidence away from us. You can 
boost it if you like. You can reduce it if you like, but this is what we feel. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned graduates because I did a, a sort of, for, for a previous interview, look at this. And yes, a, a lot of our graduates go, but the level who return is, 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 in, is highest anywhere. So I think there's a, there's a you know, please, you know, g- give our graduates these fantastic experiences and then send them back to us <laughs> so we have the benefit of all that lovely experience. Thank you very much. Um, that's great. Um, and I, 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 for the next question, I, it's more of a plea, actually. Um, we did on Eastern Promise in October um, a, a networking event on on the Norwich to Cambridge train. And we had a fantastic I remember that. reception at the end. And uh, I saw myself on telly. I've lost so much weight since then. I tell you, I, was like, I looked at myself and I panicked. Anyway, <laughs> um, and uh, we had a fantastic uh, set of roundtables recorded uh, on the train. Uh, Ridge sponsored the train tickets. Uh, Carter Jonas in Cambridge put on a fantastic reception for us. I was hoping to do it again um, in the run-up to Cambridge Tech Week, but I think that, unfortunately, um, the uh, the unpredictability of, <laughs> of strikes is going to make that... I don't want to march everyone up a hill and, and have to march them back down again. Um, but one of the things that came across in the, the transport panel with Jonathan Denby of Greater Anglia, we had Breckland Council, Andrew Holdsworth uh, there, and we also had Andrew Summers of Transport East, uh, which is fantastic to have have them all with us, is that it was uh, a campaign that got the Cambridge to Norwich service to an hourly status. Now we've got Cambridge South hopefully coming online soon to give everyone on that line access to the biomedical campus, or much easier access anyway. Can we can we sort of light a, start lighting a fire under half hourly, please? Because I I think the the, the the benefits that would bring. Um, it seems a, a weird moment to talk about rail services, but we sort of, I, as Jonathan Devery was talking, I'm thinking, Ooh, what would a half hourly do? And that's where we went. Well, what would a half hourly yeah. service do? I said that on the time. What would, we were talking about, not, oh, isn't this dreadful, the strikes, and isn't it all falling to bits? What could we do with half an hour, every half an hour? So is, is that something that Ilga and, uh, and, and, and friends can, can look at, please? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm really keen to see if we can... Uh, start the campaign again, having been so successful last time. I mean, you're right. You know, you should be able to measure uh, increased productivity and opportunity uh, on, on on rail services hourly and and half hourly. We're currently on on a campaign to get the four trains uh, an hour back at Stansted. Yes, it hasn't um, you know returned fully since since COVID either. And there's also a temptation, I know, to talk about the passenger services, but. Actually, the freight side of this is huge in terms of improved productivity and opportunity, not just in our region, but beyond our region. So all of these are high priorities for ILGA and the transport bodies. Um, You know, we've been we've been thinking about the. The freight infrastructure as much as we have the passenger infrastructure, because if you think of everything that comes through the ports in our region, a lot of that needs to get through our region elsewhere as well as into our region. Mm. And at the moment, we've got bottlenecks in that freight capacity as well. So, yes, passenger improvements and freight improvements, we're, we're on to both of those. Excellent. That's really good to hear. I shall, we shall uh, support you uh, wholeheartedly wherever and whenever we can. Um, on to looking at skills, the skills picture uh, interested me in that, how fast-moving the skills picture is becoming in the region. Uh, if we think about the renewable energy sector, 
Uh, and I know that turbine turbine uh, servicing, uh, RAF technicians are in, are in particular demand, I notice, from, from people like Van Fall and, uh, and I'm sure there are others, but Van Fall's the one that springs to mind. Um, how easy is it to keep abreast of that? Because we've got people like tech educators here in Norwich uh, doing coding boot camps, teaching people to be uh, software engineers and the like. Yeah. So how, how, do, how do you go about, how do local authorities go about that? So again, you know, in terms of the partnership working with um, skills providers, both, you know, adult skills, um, apprenticeships, T-levels, um, ILGA has a, a massive role to play there, actually. We have a, a big programme around apprenticeships and we are showcasing that for our region all the time, including a, a big Apprentice of the Year event, which, which you know, this year will all be focused on climate change related topics, interestingly Excellent. enough. That's in, in May. Um, so, yes, um, this is this is a, a very important area for us. I think one of the issues that we're facing at the moment is we're in that we're in quite a difficult um, transition period, I think, between perhaps old style skills provision and what we need in the future. Yes. And the, the proportion of people that will go through a, a kind of technical route versus maybe an academic route. Um, so a lot of the discussions are around that, how we anticipate with our um, higher education providers what those courses and skill sets need to be, you know, mm. three, four, five years uh, or longer ahead of time. If you think of things like EV charging infrastructure, for example. Absolutely. Or retrofitting um, people's homes away from gas boilers, um, you know, Ambitions and, and targets have been set around those things, but actually, where's the skills plan that replaces, you know, that skill set of dealing with gas boilers to dealing with other sorts of, of technology? So we're not a, an organisation that is... Um, we're, we're influencing in that space. We're not an organisation that's designing and delivering that kind of training, obviously. But what we're trying to do is help our councils position themselves for a greater control of that skills budget, particularly for adult education, so that in those places in our region where there are particular industries that we're trying to grow, um, we're getting into really good partnership arrangements between business, skills providers, councils, to say, actually, we can see we're going to need to have this number of people delivering in this particular skill set in our area we haven't even designed a course yet that would would deliver that. And if we can work uh, to have more of that skills funding devolved to us, we can prioritise it into that specific area mm. and start to build something in that way. Yeah. Use the apprenticeship levies in a particular way. Absolutely. Think about the T-level type courses that we that we want to, to have in our local area. And I think those... The people that can get ahead of the game on this, because of all the uh, virtual learning, I mean, clearly some of this has to be hands-on, but there is, you know, a lot of this is now virtual learning or, or even, um, I suppose, um, you know, using other technologies to, yes. to experience learning in the, in, in the real world. You know, even in, in, in medicine, you know, you're in that world now of, of virtual reality. Um, there's an opportunity then to actually... Um, create more uh, economic, economic opportunity by being an area of the country that develops that offer and then can provide it wider than just mm. your local area. So some of our councils 
I know are looking at, okay, well, we're going to build this set of um, courses and skills with these particular um, institutions. And actually, we're looking beyond our region. Obviously, we want to, to grow the workforce for our own local place. But actually, once we've got this, it could, it could then provide growth for that academic in, or, or technical institution um, to serve other parts of the country with that with that course so yeah. again it's it's thinking beyond um the immediate into how this could become a unique selling point for our region if yeah. we're the ones that have all the green energy coast absolutely we, we ought to be able to grow the green energy skills and we ought to then be able to get those um uh you know rolled out to other parts of of the country yeah and what a huge opportunity you you, you, you highlight there um, not just for education, for, for regeneration, uh, with looking at the, the, the LEAF facility in Lowestoft. So if you've got more ships coming in, bigger ships, more crew, you're going to need more facilities, more people to service those facilities, more people opening cafes and for when those people are on shore, or more people getting jobs you know, um, in, the, in, the, in the facility itself, uh, whether that be... You know, caring for the ships, or just looking after the building, or running running the show from the control room. Um, on housing, which you mentioned a minute ago, how easy is it for your members to balance uh, the need for speed and delivery um, and numbers uh, set by central government against uh, climate appropriateness, if I can call it that? I mean, Goldsmith Street. Uh, here in Norwich is an amazing example of what can be done by a determined local authority. But it's fair to say that there are, you know, the, there there are plenty of authorities. I think are thinking, well, we we can't go down that road. Mm. We can't we can't possibly do that. So how 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 do you help members balance those demands? So um, I didn't actually mention in the early part of our conversation that aside from the three political panels, we've actually got a regional climate change forum. Yes. Uh, which um, has been in place for about 12 months. And um, in that regional climate change forum, they've been looking at um, standards for house building in relation to climate change and energy efficiency. And there are some things, I think, um, within there that, that our and this is a representative of the whole region, by the way, there are some things in there that I think our region would like to, you know, go further faster with. Mm. So, yes, there's going to be the kind of national standards, and those are evolving in terms of climate change, of course. But I think in our region there is appetite to do more on that and maybe start to put um, more, a bit more pressure on collectively as to what we expect from construction in our in our region in that regard. So, and that's where by bringing councils together to actually say, um, you know, as a region or as a county, um, we're actually going to set this sort of standard for what we're looking for, um, can actually make a make a difference to to the way that happens in terms of um, speed and the, the the targets that government has set for for house building. You know, we are, nationally, we are in a really difficult place uh, with this. Yeah. Our region has actually not, not been too bad in terms of delivery of housing um, comparatively to date. But the gap between what we've got and what we need is significant. Yes. We had an eight, over 8% 8 increase in the population in the, in the last census for our region. Mm. 
And, you know, given the ambition um, to grow economically um, that I've described in some of the other work that we've been doing, lack of housing is going to be a stumbling block for that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's top of people's minds at the moment. And from the levelling up report, um, there has been a real interest in delving into that housing chapter nice. further. So good. there's further work going on behind the scenes on that right That's good now. To know, yeah. Um, so yeah, housing is going to probably be you know one of our top two advocacy priorities this year. Absolutely, I'm sure my for, my former boss Richard Bacon will be uh, will be very pleased to hear that. And then of course it, it it keeps places alive. Those those extra people, otherwise you know slowly and surely people will lose the you know the the the, uh, the facilities the assets they have as there becomes fewer and fewer people to support and, them. you know, our workforce for public sector, for key workers, health and care, you know, we need that housing mm -hmm. to retain that workforce for the future. Right. Just before I come on to my final questions, can I just ask, I, this phrase stuck out to me, what is levelling down? Because obviously we want, it sounds like something we def definitely don't want to do, <laughs> but, I mean, is, is it, what, this is what I took from it, is that... Um, we often in this region get lumped in with the southeast, and uh, not sort of pointing a finger at any political party or anything. But there tends to be, well, it all needs to be then moved elsewhere. Uh, to which the answer was, well, how is that going to help anybody? You know, yes, they should be levelled up, but that doesn't that doesn't mean you know you don't rob Peter to pay Paul. Is, is, am I on the right lines? Yeah, there? yeah, I think I think you are. I mean, obviously, we've we've had. Um, the, the conversation previously was very much about sort of north-south mm. and the balance of, of investment and opportunity between the south and the north. Um, so that, that's one aspect, to make sure that this isn't all about, you know, a, a, a south-to-north re, readjustment, which, which kind of miss, misses out the east. <laughs> but um, actually, it's also to do within our own region. So... Um, we could, uh, as a region, attract a certain amount of funding from the various levelling up funds or through devolution, but actually we still haven't solved the levelling up issue. If it's just going to certain parts of the region and others are still remaining without that investment that they need. So for us, um, we're not. It's not about kind of a winners and losers situation, but as a region, for us to say that we've achieve what we would like to achieve out of levelling up or, or an equivalent policy going yeah. forward would be that all areas of our region have benefited and can see progress towards those those missions um, and that it isn't just one part of the region at the expense of, of others. Mm. So, yeah, moving, moving the money around kind of nationally between regions and within our region, we've got a keen eye on that. Yeah. Um, our region hasn't done as well as it could have done out of that kind of um, investment previously, but it's still not going to be enough to say, well, we've two counties have done really well out of this, so that's fine for the east of England. Yes, that's, that's not going to fly, There's, is it, there's no? deprivation and inequality in all parts of our region, mm. and it can be masked by what looks good and is happening in certain parts of the region. So this report is about shining a light on that. Um, as well as saying, oh, and by the way, there's a 13th mission on climate change, which didn't feature in the level. No, up, indeed. Um, white paper, which we thought was a major omission. A major omission, absolutely. Um, and just looking briefly at the East of England 
or party group? Because as, as we, we, we've sort of mentioned what a powerful convening role ILGA have, and you work very closely with the APPG, which is great. And what struck me, as I'm lots, I've, over the years I've watched lots of these debates um, where, uh, you know, there are stalwarts like Peter Aldous and, and Daniel Zeichner and various others, um, but is the sort of, the bulk of East of England MPs sort of turn up to sort of make their point. And that usually in whichever parties in power, the, the, the response of the minister usually goes something along the lines of, we love you, we love the East of England, we've spent all this money here, well, I'll take what you have to say back to the Treasury, the levelling up department or wherever, but please be assured that we will always, we will always care and love and, and embrace you. And, and that's generally how it goes. And what I thought was really good about the, the most recent debate, which is on, on that, the levelling document, document, is that the, 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 the Minister, Minister of State, uh, Dehenna Davidson, Davison, rather, Dehenna Davison, kind of broke the mould a bit. I mean, she, did, she, she went as far as she could within the confines of her brief of breaking that mould and acknowledging the reality and saying, and, and, and really kind of almost telling it how it is, mm. which, which I thought was quite a welcome change. Uh, what was your reflection on that? Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I, one thing stuck out for me as well. I think at, at one point the phrase was used, I've heard your... Your, your sort of pleas about transport loud and clear, mm. um, words to that effect. Yeah. Um, and I really felt we got our message across that day. Um, it, it was really heartening to see that, that come through. And we are, we are receiving responses on the levelling up white paper, um, you know, from, from government as, as, as it is digested and, 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 uh, and they... They, they get back to us on it. So this is an ongoing conversation. Good, yeah. Um, and the the event this week is an opportunity for MPs, council leaders, chief execs to all be together in Parliament to focus on this report and to hear from the Minister direct. So we're, we're really looking forward to that. Uh, as am I, as am I. Uh, I should be there with my microphones. Um, for, for, for interviews afterwards, but um, I, I, should, I should add. So what's priority number one for ILGA going forward now? What is, what's the big thing you're working on? And, and I suppose, not to be grandiose about it, how can Eastern Promise support that? Well, I mentioned housing earlier. We have uh, another piece of work going on on housing right now, which will be uh, coming out in March. Um, so, yes, it'd be very interesting if, if we could have a look at that in, in a bit more detail mm. at that time. Um, children's services is another big area yes. for this year um, that we will be looking at very closely. Transport, of course, we've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. And an area that I mentioned earlier, um, which we haven't covered, but is the fourth part of ILGA and is by no means... Uh, fourth in order of, of priority is, is our strategic migration partnership. So this is um, hosted in ILGA and is the regional support, expert support to councils on all things to do with refugees, asylum seekers uh, and other visa entrants into the UK who, as we know, are being accommodated and um, we are in the middle of a real challenge in terms of helping councils deliver against that agenda. So that is a, a an ongoing and very big priority for, for our organisation. Fantastic. Well, you have this tremendously powerful, as we've said before, convening role. Um, councils have statutory responsibilities. 
and you, 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 it's, it's fantastic that you're there to kind of bridge across the region and, and take on those and, and, and assist in, in, in the delivery of those responsibilities and share best practice and bring chief executives together. You've got that, that, that political element covered, but in, a, in an almost non-political way. And um, it's, it's, it's been fantastic to read such authoritative uh, documents that sort of set out the challenges and the opportunities and the SWAT, I believe, uh, so clearly um, for the East of England. Uh, all power to your elbow. And uh, look forward to, uh, to supporting what you're, what, you're, what you're driving towards. Thanks very much. Professor Gerald Davenport, thank you ever so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to Cheryl Davenport for that hugely enjoyable discussion and I thoroughly recommend having a read of the ILGA report into the government's 12 levelling up missions.